Hi, my name is Juliette Selgren, and this is my podcast, The Great Antidote. This podcast has been brought to you by the Center for Growth and Opportunity at Utah State University. To learn more, visit www.thecgo.org. Welcome back. We often think about the Constitution and its amendments. I mean, they're very important to our government, to our function in government, to our daily lives. But when many people think about the Constitution and the amendments, they don't think about some of the ones that have caused a big fundamental change in the function and the way that the government works. For that, I'm thinking of the 17th Amendment, which changed some of the way that our legislative branch functioned. Today, I'm going to be talking to Todd Zwicky about the 17th Amendment. I'm very excited. Todd is a professor of law at George Mason University School of Law, and he teaches in the areas of bankruptcy and contract. He also focuses on the 17th Amendment, financial regulation, and a lot more. He's been on the podcast before. We talked about law and economics last time. I'm really excited for this. Welcome, Todd. Thank you, Juliet. I'm excited, too. So you've been on the podcast before, so I have asked you this question before, but I'm going to ask again, what is the most important thing or second most important thing (laughs) that people my age or in my generation should know that we don't? Well, I would say um, that that the best way to think of this is life is trade-offs. Um, and you are an economics major, so you are appreciating the idea of opportunity cost and that there's a cost to everything and the cost is not the monetary cost, it's what you give up. Um, and where people get in trouble in life, I think, is when they recognize, when they fail to recognize that life is trade-offs, uh, which is to say you can't do everything and can't be everything. Uh, the more you work, the less time you have to spend with your family or cultivating yourself uh, uh, and, and the like. And I think one thing I have learned over time is that the key of, to happiness is acknowledging um, and accepting and affirming the trade-offs you make. Um, and this became aware to me in of all peculiar contexts, the context completely foreign to me, which is in Charles Murray's uh, most recent book, um, uh, Losing Ground, I think it was called, he reports some fascinating data, which is that the single most happy group of individuals in American society are stay-at-home moms. Um, Now, why is that? Is it because um, there's something uniquely important about it? Perhaps, but I think what it really illustrates is a point, which is that that a stay-at-home mom is often somebody who simply decided to own their decision, right? Uh, which is maybe it's their decision. Maybe somebody else makes a different decision. But if you think about a lot of the conflicts people have between work and family life and that sort of thing, where they get in trouble is where they feel like they're cutting corners at both places. And so one of the things I think is interesting is not just making a choice, but consciously making a choice accepting that choice, affirming that choice, which means accepting everything you give up to do it. And the final takeaway from that then, Juliet, is I think people should really be self-aware and mindful, to use sort of a modern buzzword, um, about what's important to them. 
um, and make sure that they're spending their time doing things that are meaningful. They have a clear sense of what the priorities are in their life. And that often means saying, no, A is more important than B, which isn't to say that B is not important, but right now A is more important. And I just have to accept that means right now I can't do to do B. Um, and in many ways, accepting that your limitations, accepting that life is um, short, um, time is short, um, and you can't do everything all the time, I think is a, is a real lesson that, um, that takes a long time to, uh, to, to accept because it doesn't mean just looking at what you get, but it also means looking at and, and accepting what you give up. Uh, in order to, uh, to, to get the things that are, that are actually important in your life. That is a very good point, especially coming into 2022. It's a new year. It is time to accept our choices and to understand <laughs> because we have, we do the decision calculus as economists call it in our heads, but we don't actually spend time thinking about the trade-offs. And so often you think back and you're like, oh, well, I wish I hadn't given that up. There is a reason why you gave it up. Right. Don't forget that. And so own your decisions, essentially. That That's right. And sometimes life just it's up to sometimes decisions are thrust upon you, right? Uh, um, you lose your job or you have a health problem or, or, or someone you love has, uh, has um, uh, issues or problems or health problems or whatever. And sometimes that just means accepting this is what's important to me right now is to do this. And that means a lot of these other things that are also important just need to be, uh, to be set aside. So, um, and, and I think there's, to me, at least, that has been an important life lesson that I have learned, which is that in many ways, recognizing what you're consciously choosing not to do um, reinforces for you the value of the time uh, and the energy you spend on the things you consciously do choose to do. Let's dive in. According to Encyclopedia Britannica, the 17th Amendment of the Constitution, quote, Provided for the direct election of U.S. senators by voters of the states, it altered the electoral mechanism established in Article 1, Section 3 of the Constitution, which had provided for the appointment of senators by state legislatures, end quote. As George Will wrote a decade ago, quote, in 1913, progressives, believing that more and more direct democracy is always wonderful, got the 17th Amendment ratified, end quote. Leaving aside the pros and cons of this change and the results for now, can you explain to us why the Founding Fathers designed the structure of Congress as they did, and who was behind the idea for this design? So there were really two ideas that animated the framers, one of which is not really relevant that much today, um, at least to the same extent, and one which remains very relevant. Uh, the first reason, as people know, is that the, the framers had in mind, the way the framers arranged the government um, was um, uh, to that it wasn't a democracy. Uh, as we know, the framers created a constitutional republic and they did not create a democracy. Um, and the way you see that is what the framers did was they created really four, we think of it as three, but really four co-equal bodies in the government. And what's important is that they were all composed and selected in different ways. So, of course, we know the president was um, selected by the Electoral College, which originally was originally an elect electoral college, right, which is that they you would vote for electors in your states who then would use their discretion as to who they um, 
chose to vote for for president, that soon kind of went by the boards under the pressure of party government. Um, and we essentially got a de facto direct election system that we have now where it's a state by state, but basically um, the electors are bound to uh, to vote for whoever their state tells them uh, to. The second was the judiciary. Uh, the judiciary would be appointed, that's Article 3. They were They are nominated by the president and confirmed by the Senate and serve for good behavior, which is essentially meant they serve for life um, unless they do something illegal um, or the like. And the third was the legislature. And the the uh, framers considered the legislature to be the most dangerous branch, they called it, um, from the standpoint that the, the biggest problem that arose under the Articles of Confederation was runaway state legislatures. Um, and so what the framers said is that they were going to break this, uh, the, the legislature of Congress into two bodies. One would be the House. The House is the most democratic body of um, the federal government, which is the House um, um, is elected every two years. Um, it's got relatively small districts, um, and it's basically, uh, you know, voted on democracy. The Senate was supposed to be a counterweight to the House. The Senate, it was often said, would be where the uh, where the where the saucer to cool the uh, to cool the the, the tea, uh, which is uh, the passions of democracy in the House would be tempered in the Senate. And the Senate, we have um, senators elected for six years, and they were chosen to be indirectly elected by state legislatures. Um, that was for two functions. The first was essentially a model on the House of Lords, uh, which is the idea was that senators would be people who were too distinguished and too accomplished to be the kind of people who would go out and scramble for votes like an ordinary congressman. They would be chosen for the Senate based on their lifetime achievements as uh, military leaders, lawyers, business people, um, and the uh, and, and the like. Um, and so they'd be kind of an elite body. And one of the things we see with that is the, the kind of responsibilities that are given in the Constitution to the Senate reflect that. So, for example, we just mentioned confirmation of judges. Uh, the idea is that senators would be the kind of people who could judge um, the uh, criteria, you know, judge basically the credentials and the character of nominees. And so the confirmation power is given to the Senate. The treaty power was given to the uh, ratified treaties was given to the Senate because they thought they would be just sort of a more accomplished and sort of sober group of people. The more uh, um, that sort of elitist notion of the Senate um, kind of has gone went away pretty quickly. Um, it was a bit unstable uh, to, to begin with. The more important thing that did provide a lot of durability for a long time, and I think most people are interested in, is the Senate, uh, the institutional capacity of the uh, of the Senate, which is to say that the Senate um, actually had two functions. Uh, the first was to serve as an important part of the bicameral system. Which is the idea is by having senators elected by state legislatures, um, they would be uh, they would be voted on from a different constituency from the uh, the House, um, and so as they say in Federalist sixty two, any bill um, and in particular any nefarious bill, uh, like say supported by a special interest, would have to get a majority vote in the House, but then also get a majority vote in the Senate, which basically meant being supported by a majority of the states uh, who selected and state legislatures who selected their senators. And the second uh, real institutional purpose was for federalism, uh, which is that by having senators elected by state legislatures, the idea would be that senators would be especially 
on the lookout or protective of state uh, sovereignty and state powers of the state legislatures. Um, and as you noted, that was changed in 1913 when the 17th Amendment was ratified. So why is federalism such an important component, such an important idea yeah, the federalism is really, you know, we see this in the Federalist Papers. Federalism is really credited as being the unique American idea. Um, the, conf- uh, the Articles of Confederation were what was called a confederation, which is all the power rested in the uh, in the states. Um, and the concern the framers had was that um, that that balkanization, that de- that fragmentation, posed two great threats. The first was simply um, a risk that the United States would fail as an experiment because the British would come back in and take us over, uh, which is the there was a a, a a lack of confidence in the ability of the federal government to be able to muster an army and a navy and the like to be able to repel a foreign invader, um, you know, as we saw in the War of 1812, uh, even after the Constitution, there were still, you know, it was still a dangerous world uh, for the United States at that point. But the other thing was that uh, um, the, the internal frictions among the states were basically creating um, disunity and um, undermining economic cooperation uh, and the like. You know, states were imposing trade barriers against each other. Um, they were, you know, a, a debtor who owned, owed money in New Jersey um, and didn't want to pay it could just skip off and go to Georgia or someplace, right, and not have to pay their debt because we didn't have a very good system for doing that. So it undermined the commercial enterprise and the common market of the uh, the United States, federalism, the United States experiment was some powers would be given to the federal government really related to those two powers, interstate commerce and protection of the, um, the, the, the United States against foreign invaders, but everything else would be left to the states. Why? Basically because people have different preferences. People live in different uh, areas in different ways. What people want in Arkansas is not the same as what people want in Vermont uh, or New York. Um, and so the idea is, is that you could allow people to match up uh, their preferences with their local governments. The second thing is, is that it's a it's a mechanism for protecting against government overreach and government abuse, uh, which is as New York is learning much to its chagrin. New York keeps raising taxes, Connecticut keeps raising taxes, and basically what ends up happening is more and more productive, wealthy people just move to Florida. California keeps raising taxes and over-regulating their economy. And so Elon Musk says, forget it, I'm moving to Texas, right? Uh, and so federalism is a, a real vehicle for liberty, both accountable government as well as liberty and individual freedom uh, by allowing people to move to places uh, where the government doesn't um, uh, oppress them uh, quite as much. Can you explain how U.S. senators were chosen and appointed before the 17th Amendment was passed. It's it's a fascinating uh, system and a fascinating evolution, Juliet, uh, which is that that originally it worked pretty much like the framers thought, uh, which is that uh, their state legislatures would get together um, and they'd talk about who should be our two senators and they would pick very distinguished people. And as you probably know, uh, what is considered to be kind of the golden age of the U.S. Senate um, was in the pre-Civil War era. Um, you know, but this is the era we think of um, of John C. Calhoun, Daniel Webster, 
um, Henry Clay, right? The three, uh, the great triumvirate, they're often called. And what's interesting about that is that guys like Daniel Webster, because of this system where the legislature, uh, the state legislature's flexibility, a guy like Daniel Webster could move in and out of the government over the course of his career. He could be a senator and then serve as secretary of state. Um, or, you know, you could go into private practice for a few years as he did uh, as a lawyer. And so it wasn't uncommon for these very distinguished senators to be, you know, serving a presidential cabinet or, um, or the, uh, or the like, and then resume afterwards and go back to being a senator. Um, and so one of the things that was interesting about it is this, this problem we have today, I would say it's a problem of career politicians um, was less prominent uh, back in um uh, in those days. Over time, that changed a little bit. Um, and in particular, um, Andrew Jackson, who really kind of created uh, the the prototype of the uh, a modern American party system, basically was the first one. Ironically, he's thought of as a very um, decentralist president, but he was very um, strong-armed about um, creating state parties that would do what he told them. Um, and that's where you start to get then around that era, the emergence of political parties as they relate to, uh, to senators. Um, and eventually what happens by the uh, post-Civil War era in the late 19th century is states start adopting various different types of um, direct election um, rather than having the state legislatures choose themselves. Um, sometimes they're primary, sometimes uh, they would just pledge uh, to vote for – they would have a straw poll and the uh, two candidates would pledge to support whoever the, the people picked. And so by the time the thir- 17th Amendment came around, there were a variety of systems. A lot had some degree of direct election. Others did it the old-fashioned way and the state legislature still picked. Um, but there was a heavy party influence obviously involved in that. I know that there's a debate about whether the design that the founders created gave state legislators a little of co- a little control or a large amount of control over senators. I think you argue that state legislative control did have a substantial effect on the way that the Senate and the U.S. government operated. Can you make the case to us? Of course, yes, and there's and this is wonderful, fascinating history uh, um, about how this actually uh, operated, um, which is there's two aspects of it, which was the sort of formal rules which mattered, but then also the informal norms. So let's talk first about the formal rules. Under the Articles of Confederation, um, the delegates to the uh, uh, to the National Assembly, I, I don't remember what it's called, um, state legislatures had the power of what was called um, instruction and recall, uh, which is that state legislatures who selected um, their representatives, the federal government, could instruct them how to vote on various issues. And they used that power a lot, especially on high-profile uh, issues, and then if the uh, the representative refused to vote the way they were instructed, they could be recalled and um, replaced by a uh, by a different person, right? Uh, somebody who would follow the state legislature's uh, instructions. The Constitution of the United States specifically rejected a right of recall by state legislatures. Um, And so what we ended up seeing was a process of informal instruction where state legislators would instruct their senators to vote a certain way, but no formal power 
of recall. And what we saw from most of the 19th century is that senators actually abided by that, uh, which is the informal norm was if your state legislature instructed you to do something, if you don't want to do it, you resigned and allowed them, you sort of honorably resigned and allowed them to replace you. Um, and, um, uh, and so there was this informal norm of a legislatures, uh, state legislatures being able to do that. And obviously the fact that the uh, majority party in the state legislature was also the ones who selected you to be there in the first place meant that quite often you, your views would be in alignment. Um, and, and we actually saw during the 19th century uh, a number of situations in which senators refused to follow their instructions of their state legislatures and resigned um, instead um, as we adopted more of these direct election type workarounds that we talked about. Um, that norm went by the boards and senators then simply uh, served their six-year term pretty much um, and then ran for re-election in a similar way. I read somewhere that the, until the change in 1913, the structure of Congress in the written constitution has barely been touched and had barely been touched until, or sorry, since 1791. Right. Can you tell us what prompted that change 130 years after <laughs> Yeah, it's it, it, there were there were a couple things, and you know, partly what it was was just the rising tide of democracy, uh, which is to say, um, it, you know, that a lot of the pressure uh, arose out of the populist uh, movement, um, and a lot of the. Um, a lot of the criticism was by sort of, uh, you know, what they called the yellow press or the muckraking journals, uh, newspapers that railed against the Senate. Why? Because the Senate was doing exactly what the framers told was uh, wanted it to do, which is as the House would kind of pass all these bills uh, and all this legislation and all this federal legislation, the Senate was slowing it all down, blocking it. And it gave rise to the idea, a, a common thing, I think the Hearst Press, if you've heard of that, referred to as mm -hmm. the Millionaires Club, um, that they were out of touch uh, with the people. And so partly it was democracy. Now, my view is that can't explain all of it. Uh, the reason being that nobody ever proposed uh, electing judges, federal judges, even though the majority of states in the United States today have elected judges and, and a lot of them were adopting during this period elected judges. There's no serious effort to, um, to elect federal judges. And so I think that explains some of it, but not all of it. A second group, um, a second reason that's related to that was that there were special interests who clearly would benefit from um, direct election uh, of senators. Uh, first, um, the growth of interstate markets and interstate commerce, um, the railroads and everything group around the railroads, um, uh, the, the railroad industry and others um, wanted a more active uh, federal government that would sit on state uh, governments um, and that, that sort of thing. And so more interstate um, commerce gave rise to more interstate interest groups. And they basically wanted to undermine this bicameral process we talked about uh, where the Senate was blocking a lot of things uh, that they wanted. And related to that was, um, ironically, um, urban uh, political machines were big supporters of the 17th Amendment. Why? Because at this time, state legislatures were mirrored on the, on the United States Senate. And so there was... Um, um, different that, that, that they were, that they were geographically based rather than population based. And so that tended to give rural interest in states 
more voice uh, over their senators than uh, than the urban areas. And so uh, urban machines um, and the denizens of the big cities uh, were pushing for this uh, as well. Um, one other sort of historical quirk is that there was some that there was a problem with what was called deadlocks, uh, which is that a number uh, or several state legislatures from time to time failed to actually uh, successfully elect a senator uh, to, to, to represent them. And so they had vacancies, uh, Delaware and some other states, especially Western states, um, which had very um, unstable politics at the time, would have periods where they would have no senator um, in the government. I think that view is um, uh, overstated as well. Most state legislatures figured out how to do it uh, after the first time mm-hmm. they made a mistake. But more to the point was that it was caused by a federal law actually, that um, required senators to get a clear majority of their uh, the, the vote from their state legislatures. And so in places where you had weak parties or frag- political fragmentation, it was hard to rally majority support behind one senator. And of course, the irony of this, Juliet, is that once we adopted the 17th Amendment, we got that you, you don't have to have a majority vote in order to be elected um, as a senator now. And it's quite common now that um, a plurality winner, uh, if there's any uh, strong third party uh, in a state, it's quite common now that somebody who gets 40 or 45 percent of the vote ends up being elected senator. And so so part of that was blamed on state legislatures, but it may have been more properly blamed on this federal law that dictated to state legislatures how they were supposed to elect senators. While the 17th Amendment quickly became very popular, right, I mean, as you just explained, it's come under criticism in the recent decade or so, and it's come under criticism from various scholars for removing an important power that state legislatures possessed. So where did the renewed interest in the 17th Amendment come from? Um, yeah, the 17th and, and you know, one thing that's interesting about the 17th Amendment is it's that to understand the history of the 17th Amendment, we have to realize that the 16th Amendment, which also uh, pa- uh, provided for the income tax, was uh, was passed at the same time. And so what we had was this interesting dynamic where the 16th Amendment the ability of the government to directly tax people's incomes basically um, eliminated the constraint on the federal government in raising tax revenues. And the 17th Amendment basically Mm -hmm. eliminated the primary constraint on the government, the federal government, in terms of how they spent money and how they regulated uh, in basically the way in which um, uh, um, they, they, you know, instructed states uh, what to do. So why has there been such renewed interest in recent years? Well, one um, actually um, does relate to the initial point we talked about, which was sort of the the elite notion and the st- stabilizing notion of the Senate, which is um, a lot of times what gets people interested in the Seventeenth Amendment is is simply the disgraceful conduct of the Senate, uh, and in particular some of these just you know quite embarrassing. Um, carnivals um, and festivals and and they have when they try to conduct a serious confirmation hearing, as we've seen with a number of Supreme Court nominees, uh, for example. Um, And that really concerns people, uh, that the low quality of a lot of members of the Senate and their tendency toward demagoguery on uh, especially the serious issues like uh, Supreme Court nominees really causes a lot of people to wonder how the heck we got uh, uh, here and whether there's a better way of uh, of doing it. But um, 
<clears throat> but the more, the, I think the more long lasting criticism relates to uh, the growth of the federal government. Um, and it's pretty clear to me that the growth in the 20th century and into the 21st century of the federal government is very closely tied to the enactment of the 17th and the 16th amendments uh, uh, together. Um, and in particular, the fact that we really don't have constitutional federalism anymore. We've got some prudential federalism, uh, which is to say that, uh, um, that uh, sometimes they'll respond and they'll, they'll honor, um, you know, uh, federalism. But, but what the 17th Amendment fundamentally did was change the incentives of senators. Um, the way the framers had arranged the original Senate was the way in which senators be elected and reelected would be by basically treating the state legislatures as their constituents. Um, and they were not going to heedlessly give away the power of the state uh, legislatures or vote for federal laws that dramatically infringed on the powers of the um, of the states. Um, because if they did, then they would be voted out of office. Um, direct election changes that, um, and it goes directly to the people. Um, and the people uh, seem to care more about results uh, than they care about constitutional structure. And so if a politician finds it in his or her self-interest to expand the power of the federal government or give handouts to some special interest um, that will help them get reelected, little um, you know institutional details like the um, uh, like federalism um, generally don't hold them back, um, and the invocation of federalism now, whether from Republicans or Democrats, um, is usually just uh, um, insincere and strategic rather than a truly principled position. You support the repeal of the Seventeenth Amendment, as you wrote in an exchange with your GMU colleague Ilya Soman called. Federalism and separation of powers, the ramifications of repealing the 17th Amendment. However, your support for repeal doesn't rest on a belief that repealing the 17th will be a cure for America's <laughs> constitutional ills. As you write, quote, our constitutional culture has become too intellectually shallow and corrupted by decades of structural protections destroyed by expediency and special interests to believe that any single change could restore our constitutional culture, end quote, which is what you were just mentioning. So can you explain your support for repealing the 17th if it is not the only step that needs to be taken? Yeah, I think it would make a difference um, at, at the margin. You know, the, the framers, the, the brilliant insight of the framers, um, I think the single greatest insight they had was in Federalist 51, where uh, where Madison says, you know, the if if uh, if men were angels, no government would be necessary, but uh, since men are not angels, um, government is necessary. But the great challenge is this, uh, which is first, um, uh, creating a government that's strong enough uh, to control the governed, right, to stand up to interest groups and, you know, democratic pressures, um, and at the same time, oblige it to control itself, uh, which is to keep, protect the people from oppression by the, uh, by their leaders, uh, to create um, enough independence to uh, protect minority rights, but at the same time create enough accountability so that uh, people have to uh, that the that the politicians don't use it as a way just to advance their own selfish interest, and that's why they created this kind of elaborate and somewhat complicated system of four different bodies, plus uh, the, the the power of judicial review, the Bill of Rights, and that sort of thing, uh, which is um, which is uh, a part of it. <clears throat> 
Um, and um, uh, and what they said, the, the engine of this would be that the, the, the great check here would be the self-interest of the politicians. Uh, and so if you – they say the interest of the man must be aligned with the constitutional rights of the place. So if you want the Senate to take the state seriously and take federalism seriously, you have to provide an incentive to senators – to do that. And the way you do that is by tying their electoral um, success to doing that job. Um, once we've unhooked that uh, now where you, you're, you do your job by basically delivering goodies to favored special interests um, and making speeches about it, um, that's what you get if that's what gets you elected. If your incentives are to protect the states, then you're going to tend to get more of that. And so my view is, while it's not a panacea, as we said, I think realigning um, the the senators, realigning senators with their state legislatures, um, at least would create um, some re- restore some of that institutional and constitutional uh, safeguard for federalism and uh, bicameralism. Um, how how much I don't know, but I think it would certainly be better than we have today. Although um, it would be imperfect. Um, uh, because it would create imperfect incentives still for uh, for for senators, but but I think it would be a, a great uh, step towards restoring um, the Constitution and helping people understand the constitutional value that we don't have a democracy. We have a republic, constitutionally uh, limited republic uh, of separation of powers and checks and balances and the like. Well, so then, how do you respond to the criticism? Or the argument that the repeal of the 17th is undemocratic? Um, it is undemocratic. Uh, I don't uh, respond to it at all, uh, which is to say it is undemocratic. And I think that undemocratic uh, elements of the Constitution, as part of the Constitution, are important for the reason we just said, right, which is that there's a balance here. It's a trade-off. There's no solution uh, to this problem of obliging the government, uh, uh, you know, having the government having the power in the first place to control the governed and in the second place obliging it to control itself. Um, We don't want to have a democracy because in that sense, you don't have any checks on the governed. They can do whatever they want to, however they want to, whenever they want to, to uh, to minorities uh, and and the like. Then, um, but we don't also don't want to have a kingship uh, where a king can basically say, "I don't care what the people think," because we know what happens then is the king enriches himself. So, what they tried to do is create this process where these two um, these two impulses would be um, in tension uh, with each other, and I think. What we're seeing now in the United States is sort of a corruption of both of those, um, which is to say, first, we have too much democracy um, in the sense that the um, the federal government has just become a um, special interest, you know, uh, reward enriching machine. But at the same time, the dysfunction of Congress has allowed for this massive growth of this unaccountable bureaucracy within the executive branch, which even the presidents themselves can't really um, uh, can't really uh, um, control. And what we see is now, in you know, the pandemic experience is a good example of it. Is that the bureaucrats have basically taken on a, a life of their own, where they where they are basically running large uh, chunks of the, the country, and the presidents running chunks of the country, and the governors are you know in this case, the president, their executive orders and other unaccountable type uh, type things. So I think that 
focusing more consciously on both the strengths and weaknesses of democracy um, is good. And so is it anti-democratic? Sure it is compared to what we have now. But I think that might be a a good thing to restore some of the balance that the framers uh, saw. And I think a way that I might put it is that protecting state sovereignty protects the will of the people at a regional level where the states can better represent the needs of an area, right? That's absolutely right. That's right. Yep. So if repealing the 17th Amendment is only the first step in restoring constitutional governance and then deepening citizen understanding about the Constitution, what are other steps you believe are required? I'm always wary about this, Juliet, and, I, and um, I, I, I smiled when you asked the question because um, I travel the country a lot. I speak a lot of law schools and to lawyer groups and stuff like that, and this is often a topic that I that I speak about. And 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 I think it's a great lesson embedded in the history of the Seventeenth Amendment, which is that that the that the politicians, the the legislators uh, at the time including senators who supported the 17th Amendment, thought that it was a, uh, a fairly trivial act, uh, which is they thought, oh, well, this is no big deal, right? We'll just let the people uh, let the people choose rather than the, the, the legislature. Legislatures will be relieved of this burden and, you know, it'll all be fine. Well, uh, what turned out to be the case is that there were huge unintended consequences that flowed from the 17th Amendment. It was a big deal. Um, and what their assumption was at the time was, I think, that the, the norms of federalism after 150 years or so, the Constitution, um, were so strong that we could re- we could remove this this formal constraint and um, it wouldn't be a problem. What we found out was pretty quickly the incentive structure of direct election uh, overran uh, those uh, those traditions. And the lesson there, Juliet, gets to, to my point, which is um, that. Uh, whenever I travel the country and speak to people, a lot of people have some sort of silver bullet that they say, this is the one constitutional amendment that's going to save America and turn this all around, right? And maybe it is um, getting rid of partisan gerrymandering for Congress, or maybe it's the balanced budget amendment, or maybe it's some amendment that will allow the states to repeal state uh, laws uh, or federal laws um, and that and that sort of thing. And they can explain to you in a lot of detail why it's a good thing and what the benefits of it would be. And the question I always ask them then is, okay, now tell me what the unintended consequences of that will likely be. <laughs> tell me what, what the downside might be of doing that. And it turns out nobody ever thinks about the downside, right? Um, and in particular, this question of what kind of incentives are you putting in place for the people who end up doing it? And is it actually compatible with the incentives uh, of the people who are doing it? And it may be that you look at these things, you say yes or no, but all of them have have benefits and all of them have costs. Um, and so I think there are some that are worth thinking about. I think a balanced budget amendment, even though it would be hard to enforce uh, in the uh, in, in the like, um, uh, might be better than what, what we have now. Um, uh, so, I mean, I, I haven't really thought systematically about, uh, about these other sorts of things. It's not clear to me that restoring the electoral college would be a good idea. In fact, I, you know, the, the original electoral college 
probably not a good idea. Um, but, uh, um, but, uh, but a lot of it, and I think a lot of what it is, is just enforcing the constitution we have, uh, which the Supreme Court has been pretty lax about in many times, um, in history. And so a lot of the stuff is there right now, um, in terms of enforcing the separation of powers, enforcing constraints in the federal government via federalism. And it's not so much a, um, a, a need to, to, to change the constitution as persuading the courts to enforce the constitution that's there already. And in terms of the 14th Amendment, if you want to learn more about the 14th Amendment, listen to my conversation with Randy Barnett about it. Um, the, the Supreme Court was more than lax. They were very aggressively anti-14th Amendment and just took away everything it meant. And so restoring that, I think you're on to something that that sort of thing would make a significant difference. Yes. And, and that's a good example of what the framers uh, were concerned about, right? Which is one of the observations the framers made, um, and it, and this isn't, doesn't apply in all circumstances, but one of the reasons why the framers were afraid of or didn't like the Confederate, the Articles of Confederation and so much power in the local governments is they said, look, you know, but this runs a real threat of what they call majority faction on the local level, uh, which is that minority that while federalism is great because it creates accountability to the majority, um, this trade-off we talked about, which is obliging, uh, um, the, you know, obliging the, you know, controlling the governed, right? Which is co- preventing majorities from oppressing minorities. There's good reason to believe, as the framers observed, that that's a bigger problem on the local level and uh, the state level. And we saw that, uh, right, uh, where the majority of whites uh, use the power of government to oppress the minority of blacks. Um, and that's just what it was. And that's why then the 14th Amendment was designed to, uh, to, off, to, to, to offset that. And as you said, the failure to enforce it property, uh, properly led to these really, um, awful, um, uh, oppressions of uh, minorities uh, in, in the country. And so, you know, even in that lesson itself, you see some of these tensions uh, that the uh, the framers were, were wrestling with and many of the ways in which what they saw was really quite um, um, perceptive. In the debate about D.C. statehood, one of the main reasons why actually changing D.C. to be a state why that wasn't a possible outcome was first it was in it's a it's an amendment that is difficult in itself but also that it was considered a major political power grab on the side of the left what are the politics in the debate of, on the 17th amendment and do politics make repeal impossible well obviously there there's one golden rule of politics uh, which is incumbents never vote for things that reduce their power uh, so, so you would basically have to uh, to get a constitutional amendment, um, assuming that we would never have a constitutional convention, which I think is a valid um, uh, assumption because I don't think there's people fear a constitutional convention at this point. Um, the way uh, amendments get passed is you have to have two thirds of the House, two thirds of the Senate, and then three quarters of states ratify it. Um, and it's hard to imagine that two thirds of current senators, career politicians who have great incumbency advantages and obviously like being centers, this would require them to basically vote against their own interest. And that simply doesn't happen. Um, and so, for example, the golden rule of campaign finance reform um, is 
it always helps incumbents, period, right? Regardless of what else happens, it always helps incumbents. Um, and it's the same here. And so this is one that's uniquely difficult to see how it comes about because senators would basically have to vote personally against their own interest to bring, uh, to bring this, uh, this about. And that's a pretty burdensome, um, uh, 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 hurdle. Uh, the second thing is that there are a lot of people, especially powerful interest groups, who like the way the system works now, precisely for the reasons we said, which is a lot easier to lobby Congress and lobby 100 uh, senators to get 51 to vote for it than it was prior to the 17th Amendment, when, just as the framer said, you would have to persuade a majority of a majority of state legislatures to agree with you in terms of, uh, you know, uh, instruction to instruction to their uh, to their senators or uh, the informal ways in which they interacted with senators, and so you know, there's a real favor machine, a real rent-seeking interest group machine that is oiled by direct election of uh, of senators. That um, uh, that those interest groups would be very active in blocking um, any efforts to uh, to re- to reform it. So um, so we're kind of stuck. Um, it's kind of a non-starter, and so I. I think a, a more plausible way of doing it would be the Supreme Court needs to recognize that the 17th Amendment was intended to change the vehicle for protecting the mechanism for protecting federalism. But there's no indication that they, that they intended to or thought they were killing federalism as a constitutional value. Now, my friend Ralph Rohner disagrees with that. He thinks it really was an assertion of federal government and uh, um, and a deliberate um, uh, design to reduce the power of federalism. I, I disagree when I read the debates. I think they just thought that they were making a little tweak. Um, but I think that given that, that the the plausibility of repealing the 17th Amendment, I think what we should be doing is urging the Supreme Court or some other institutions of the government to um, to to step up uh, and protect federalism as a constitutional value now that the self-enforcing political constraints have broken down. Thank you so much, Todd. That is unfortunately all the time we have. But before we go, I want to ask you the final question. What is one thing you believed at one time in your life that you later changed your position on, and why? <laughs> so I'm gonna I'm gonna get a little heavy uh, with you on this one, uh, uh, Juliet, which is um, uh, again I guess this is life lesson, uh, which is um, about uh, 15 years ago I discovered my faith, uh, which is that I believed. Um, that uh, my 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 powers of rationality um, and reason were strong enough uh, to to help me identify what was important to me in my life and how to get through uh, throughout through life. You know, talking about as I said earlier, which is creating a coherent and clear hierarchy in my head of what was more or less important than other things. Um, and I discovered that that was not true uh, and that I felt a, a spiritual call um, that uh, that I answered. Um, it has been very rewarding to me um, and has given me a sense of purpose in life uh, that I found that I was uh, lacking. Uh, I feel like that is because um, uh, I was touched by truth Um but whatever the source of that meaning uh, to me, it uh, created a sense of calm and coherence in in my life uh, that uh, turned out to really kind of orient me 
um, and to help me understand what was more important and less important and what I could control in my life and what I couldn't. And so uh, that was a big one I changed my mind on, uh, which is I was probably sort of uh, an agnostic who never really thought about it um, and um, sort of a variety of life pressures and the like led me toward um Toward, uh, toward, toward that. I'll, I'll add one last one, just as a footnote, that's especially relevant nowadays. Um, mm-hmm. This spring, I had a, um, a terrible case of something called Ramsey-Hunt syndrome, uh, which is a very, uh, a very dangerous form of, uh, of shingles. And, and my doctor at the time basically committed multiple acts of mal- malpractice. Um, and one thing I changed my mind on and learned from that is I've become much more aggressive about... Um, making my own decisions about my health um, and investigating things um, and, and discovering for myself what the right way to do things is and what's good and what's bad and, and not just relying purely on the so-called experts um, or certainly not the so-called medical consensus, but recognizing that um, every person is, is separate. Every person's medical history is separate. Every person's uh, what's appropriate is, uh, is different. Um, and so I would say that uh, that uh, attitude I had of uh, sort of respecting the authority of, uh, of my doctor was really disabused by one act of, uh, of malpractice. And, and, and I would urge people to really take ownership over their, their health decisions uh, in, in the life and, and, and the like and really understand what they're doing. Well, that's all we have time for today. I'd like to thank my guest once again for their time and insight. I would also like to thank everyone who listens, subscribes, and shares the Great Antidote podcast. If you would like to be on the podcast, have a guest in mind, or have a topic in mind, please feel free to reach out to me at thegreatantidote at thecgo.org. Catch you next time. Bye.